medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. Chinese medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Chiological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of Chinese medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese medicine. Listen into these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Geological Podcast. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. 
I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. My guest today is Andy Ellis. Andy is an author and a translator. Some of his works include The Fundamentals of Chinese Acupuncture and Grasping the Wind. He did some great work in the second edition of Formulas and Strategies from Eastland Press. And he's one of the co-translators of the recently released A Walk Along the River. That's uh, We did a show with uh, Michael Fitzgerald, show number three, earlier this year. Uh, more on that book. In addition, Andy is a translator, and he also runs Springwind Herbs. And I am, in particular, looking forward to our conversation today, as Andy has a lot of experience with the various concerns around contamination and quality and safety of herbs that us practitioners have. And that is the subject of our conversation today. Andy, welcome to Geological. Uh, hi, Michael. Nice to, nice to talk with you. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here. So I'd like to start with just a little bit of background. And how is it that you found yourself starting up an herb company? You know, I know entrepreneurs are often looking to solve a problem of some sort. Was there some kind of itch you were trying to scratch or some kind of draw that led you into uh, importing and selling Chinese herbs? Well, it would be a really nice answer to that question if I had some overall plan about my life and how it was going to go and that I actually planned what was going to happen. <laughs> but that doesn't seem to be the way life works. Uh-huh. Uh, no, it was really quite quite an accident that I started uh, Springwood Herbs. I, I had gotten a job in, uh, in San Francisco at uh, one of the acupuncture colleges. And this was back in 1991 or two, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, I don't know how they do these days, but at that time they didn't pay their teachers particularly well, and uh, and so I could not survive on uh, on the, uh, the pay from uh, just teaching herbs herbs at the uh, college, which it was a great experience, but uh, didn't didn't right. even pay my rent. Didn't put rice in the rice bowl. Exactly. So uh, I decided I would start a little uh, herb company. And uh, it was basically a um, an herb shop. It was not what we have today. It was uh, it was an herb shop that uh, my my students could come in and fill their formulas, and I could uh, treat my patients as well. Uh, so it was a uh, it was a it was a matter of convenience at that point. So there was nothing. Uh, there was I had no ethical, uh, you know, some some major goal that I wanted to accomplish. You know, you started it really for your own convenience. 
this is true. And, and you know, also hopefully to make a little bit of money to supplement what I was making uh, teaching and seeing patients. And so it wasn't until much later, actually, uh, probably about a year or so into having the herb shop that we started to grow as, a, as an herb distributor. And this happened because of two, uh, two things that we discovered. You need a lot more background for uh, to understand it completely, but I think I can, I can give you a good idea. So uh, what happened was that uh, we discovered that the herbs that uh, that we were buying from the local importers, uh, that a number of the herbs were incorrect species, uh, according to what I had seen when I was in China and Taiwan. And so I began to pay a lot of attention to that issue. And the other issue had to do with a couple of years later, we began to discover that uh, that pesticide residues, that many of the herbs had pesticide residues. And there was also the issue of, uh, of sulfur contamination. So those three things kind of uh, pushed us in a direction uh, that I really had could not have it intended because I wasn't aware of the of the issues right. before I got to the herb business. You know, this is so often the case with so many things. You know, we start off with something and as we go, we find out more or there's challenges that come up or there's questions that come up. And then it, it just leads into something we never could have imagined from the outset. Well, sure. You know, when you sell Chinese herbs, you're you're selling herbs to to patients. These were for my patients, and and for my family, and for my friends, and my friends' patients, and that kind of thing. So I didn't want to be selling stuff that uh, that wasn't pure, or you know, or that had some issues with it. And so uh, then that's what sort of drove me into changing changing into being a distributor because there was no one uh, at that time. Uh, doing what we we thought needed to be done, so it was a way of pushing the industry in a direction. Although I have to say, I mean, really, it was pretty selfish. I just really wanted to have good herbs uh, so that I could use them myself and with my patients, and, and like I said, for my my students' patients and that kind of thing. So that's how we became Spring Wind as a as, as a company that people know, you know, because at that point we were just a small uh, a small herb shop. Right. So you mentioned that. You know, back in those early days, you began to become aware of, of the pesticides with the herbs. Was pesticides always an issue, or is that something that has changed over the years? Well, it's a good question, and I'm not sure I, I know the, the I can get to the actual truth of it, but I can tell you that we started testing herbs, I would say, in 1993 or 94. So that's really early on. Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, at that point, you know, it cost, in those days, it was like four or $500 to do the test. So what we would do is we'd take three herbs uh, to, together and test them all. And if anything came up, then we'd have to test, you know, then we'd have to start testing them one at a time because it was too expensive to test them one herb, you know, at a time. <clears throat> Eventually, of course, that changed and, and now we test one herb at a time. But uh, so we started doing that. And at that time, we were only testing the commonly used herbs. Uh, there were two reasons for that. One is because we couldn't afford anything else. And secondly, was because we f figured that the herbs that were going to be subject to pesticide uh, contamination were the ones that were grown, not the herbs that were wildcrafted. So a great many of the less commonly used herbs are, were just wildcrafted, and we figured they probably were okay. Mm -hmm. But things like Dangue and Huangqi and Fuling, we figured we'd better test. And so, uh, because they were they were pretty much all grown, uh, very seldom wildcrafted, and uh, in those days. And so, what we used to find was that we would find large amounts of uh, pesticides on certain herbs, 
and it was pretty much the same herbs all the time. We'd find, you know, well, they, they would have the same pesticides. Uh-huh. And, uh, but that changed as time went by. We began to find more and more pesticides on, uh, on herbs, but the amounts were less. And so, and then you go all the way to today where um, they have, after they put in the, the uh, good agricultural practices in China, mm-hmm. and we found that the number of herbs actually increased a lot. We have a lot more herbs that have pesticides, but the amounts are much, are much less. So there was a more conscious uh, application of the, uh, of the pesticides. Mm-hmm. And also a wider application, it sounds like. Yes, and they used a lot more, a lot more, and 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 we start to see a lot less of stuff that we used to see. Like we used to see DDT and and its uh, metabolites, but we don't see those uh, so much anymore. Occasionally, we'll, we'll find something with that in it, but now more of the modern, the modern pesticides are much more common. Yeah, I understand that. You know, you you also represent a company. I, I want to remind listeners: this is not an infomercial for Spring Wind. We're not looking to tout you. We're looking to have your expertise here as someone who's been working with herbs and importation and contamin- you know, all all the issues that we're interested in. When it comes to testing, are, are there any agreed upon standards that we have in the United States? Are there any particular levels that that are mandated that you know, imported herbs are supposed to meet or um, levels of pesticide that are acceptable or not acceptable? Uh, what's, yeah, it's what's, a good question. Uh, what's the story with that? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's the legal question, uh, and then there's, you know, in terms of import, and then there's also the question of what uh, a person, what a company feels they should do or, or want to do. So those those are two separate questions. In terms of some people think that, uh, that the FDA checks all these uh these herbs coming in for pesticides, and, and unfortunately, that's not true. You, I, we've been in business now for 25 years. I think they've maybe tested about two or three herbs that we uh, that we've imported. So we've imported thousands and thousands of herbs, and, and they've never tested them for pesticides, but we do. And so the question would be, what would they what would they say if they found some? And uh, on the samples, I don't believe they ever found any on any of our uh, of the samples they tested. So that was never an issue. But it was, like I said, so few. If they had found any, the truth is they would have to reject the, the shipment because there's no acceptable level for pesticides in Chinese, in most Chinese herbs. So if they find any residue at all, back they go. They should. That should be the case. Whether that actually happens or not, I, I truthfully don't know. Mm-hmm. So... They have a test. It's about four. They test the FDA test for about four hundred herbs when they do tests. Four hundred herbs or four hundred four hundred pesticides. Four hundred pesticides. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, they test for about four hundred pesticides. They do have certain levels for certain items. I think for the goji berries, they have uh, you know for gochitsu, they have some levels. They have some levels for our ginseng for sure of certain pesticides. And they have actually have a list of, of pesticides that you have to test ginseng for, and but they accept uh, uh, some of the herbs. They won't accept any. Uh, some of the pesticides are not acceptable at all. For example, uh, DDT is not allowed in any amount. But uh, the other pesticides, they'll they'll have a level, you know, that they've determined somehow is acceptable for that particular item. Uh, so. But the truth is, if an item if an item is not specified and doesn't have any levels established by the uh, the FDA, then they 
it should not be allowed in the country. But well, it sounds like the FDA does such little testing on these. I mean, some you know, it's basically a moot point. It sounds like the 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 onus on this falls to whoever is bringing these herbs to market, if that's something that is even of interest to them. Sure. And and I think we should be really clear here because, you know, if you go to the grocery store, if you eat out at a restaurant, then uh, when you're eating foods, a lot of them will have pesticide residues in them. Of course. And so some companies might think small amounts of uh, pesticide residues are not really harmful and, uh, and, and impossible to avoid. And therefore, they don't put a lot of effort into that. And that's, I think, a perfectly legitimate uh, point of view, depending on how you, you know, how you look at things. For us, you know, I agree that probably really small amounts of certain pesticides are not really very harmful. Um, but if you're taking them day after day, then maybe they are slightly harmful. And also, you know, I never wanted to be in the position where I had to decide, okay, well, what level are we going to accept and what level are we not going to accept? Uh, but companies can do that if they want to for, you know, for the different pesticides and for the different herbs. You know, for example, if there's an herb that's hardly used at all and it has a little pesticide on it, you know, then you might think it's that might be okay and that might be okay for some for certain companies they might make that determination and i think it's perfectly legitimate mm -hmm. uh yeah we just didn't we don't go into that uh, that kind of detail we just say we just don't accept them if they have pesticides okay so so for spring wind your your bottom line is if there's pesticide residue you don't use it uh by and large that's the case and if we do uh, accept any with uh, any products with uh pesticides then we put it on the website and people have to check a box that saying that they realize that this this item does have pesticides uh, did test positive for pesticides okay. so it sounds like this is something that you know every company probably has their own testing protocols and their own um policies on what's acceptable and what's not is that is that a fair statement it is, and I and, and I think that's a great thing because that way people can choose. You know, think that they can choose a company that matches their what they care about. You know, if they don't care that much about it, or if they think a small amount of pesticides is fine, then then that's just fine. Or if they think, you know, I've I've heard people say that they think all the pesticides are uh, are destroyed in the cooking of the herbs. If if they believe that, then then maybe they don't want to you know, pay extra for all the pesticide testing mm -hmm. that uh, that's done. So I think it's good to have different companies with different approaches to this. And, uh, you know, and, each, and they're all legitimate. It's just what you want to do. It's just what you want to do. So probably the thing to do then is whoever you're purchasing your herbs from, just ask them what your testing protocols and, and if there's certain levels of contamination, what, what's acceptable. Exactly. And I think that, uh, you know, people, if they don't care at all about the pesticide issue, then they don't have to ask that question. But if they do care about it, then it would be good to know, as opposed to, uh, you know, companies all say that they test for pesticides, but it'd be good to know exactly what they're doing, you know, what tests they're doing and what levels they accept. Uh, those are those are good questions to ask. What they test for pesticides and what do you do with the results? How does that how does it impact what you actually sell? Exactly. And also, can, can I see them? <laughs> you know, can I see the test? Uh -huh. That would be, that'd be, that's something I would, I'd want to see, you know, because uh, do you test every lot or do you just test them once in a while? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So, you know, I've heard about lot testing. What does that actually mean? Well, uh, usually it would mean, hopefully for all the companies that, that in the U.S., what we do is we, before we purchase a lot of herbs, we get uh, a sample 
uh, and we tested for pesticides before before purchasing it. each lot. You know, every time we bring one in. So. And a lot is how many herbs? Oh no, a lot is one herb. <laughs> so for every every uh, so, so say for example we have dangue uh -huh. and you bring it in and your first dangue is called you know zero zero one and uh, you test that lot you brought in five hundred pounds and you and you test it and then then of course it's very important if you're testing for pesticides that you're tracking your lots because if you bought five hundred pounds and you tested five hundred pounds then you can't sell seven hundred pounds of that lot. Yeah, you can only sell 500 pounds because that's all that you uh, right. verified our pesticide free. And, and do you pull samples randomly from the lot? How does that work? Yeah, there's a it's a fairly complex equation that you have to calculate. Depending on the size of your lot, the number of packages uh, involved, and that kind of thing. So you're usually taking from at least three different places, but it can be up to five or ten different places that you're taking herbs out of. What about organics? I, I mean, I've spent some time in China. You spent a lot more time in China. In some ways, when I think organic, I don't often think of China. I often think of, you know, places that, that often have a lot of contamination. How do we know that we're actually getting organic herbs from China? I mean, we could ask that same question here in the United States, too. I realize that I'm not particularly trying to single out China, but I, I know that a lot of people have concerns about this. Sure. Well... My experience with organic, I can only tell you about that in China, is that most of the organic herbs that come from China are not grown organically. They're grown in, a, in an area that's declared organic. So, for example, a company might uh, purchase the land or the right to a land uh, of an old, a whole mountain. This is, might be you know, 15, 20 square miles of, of mountainous area. And they uh, don't allow any pesticide use in that in that area, and they pick the herbs out of there. Uh, and they can actually sort of wild, uh, what's that called? Like woods grown, like you know? They can, they can plant. It's well, wildcraft would be picking what's already there, but they can actually, you know, spread the seeds themselves mm. as well in these areas, and then go in and harvest it. And then everything from that area is is considered to be organic. Now, the issue that we found early on, and I, I don't know if it's as bad nowadays, but it was pretty bad for a while, was that people would, I think, do this legitimately. Uh, say, for example, they got some shanju in the, in the wild, you know, in, on this mountain. Uh, unfortunately, they'd, they'd pick 500 pounds of, of shanju and then they'd go out and buy another 500 pounds and mix it together. And then they'd have 1,000 pounds of organic uh, shan you when they really only had 500 pounds and it was all mixed together yeah so it's hard to prevent them from doing that so you'd have a mixed a mixed lot and so i decided early on was that we would always test uh, organic herbs for for pesticides uh, and unfortunately we found i would say in the old days it was about 50 percent of them had pesticides mm -hmm. so we would obviously just reject those now it's not so bad i still find them we, we i recently just rejected a, a lot of organic herbs so it still happens. Uh, now, whether that was, you know, drift from a, a neighboring uh, a farm or something, you never know. Because organic doesn't mean pesticide-free. Organic means that they're, they're certified by an organic agency for growing things in a proper manner, not using uh, certain pesticides, not using certain fertilizers, that kind of thing. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're pesticide-free. There could still be some drift. There could still be some uh, pesticide residues left in the soil that kind of thing, and they can still be uh, certified organic. I see. 
Nowadays, people are growing herbs organic in China. I know I've been to several farms where they're doing that. Some of them have applied for the international certificate. You can get one for the USDA uh, so that they could sell these. But a lot of them are just what they call China, uh, China organic, uh, meaning that they're not certified by a, a, an independent agency just by the Chinese government. Right. And that usually includes that they've set aside this area of land. And that includes those, but it also includes people growing growing Chinese herbs. I see. Because, you know, the way that people used to grow Chinese herbs in the old days before there were pesticides. Mm-hmm. What about the issue of heavy metals? Just to get back on, on the organic thing. So I think that if, if, if people want to purchase organic, mm-hmm. it's great. They should check the quality because sometimes the quality of organic, you know, some of these farmers that are now trying to grow these things organic had not done so in the past. And they, you know, they're learning how to do it. So I suspect that organically grown herbs will get better and better as time goes on. As they, as they get those processes figured out. Yeah, how they figure out, you know, they got dependent on pesticides. Now how are they going to get undependent on pesticides? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the other issue is just to make sure that they're tested for pesticides. Because I, I think people are buying organic and they think these are free of pesticides. And, and like I said, it's not necessarily the case at all. So uh, I'd be really, really careful. You know, just ask to see the pesticide test. Uh, for if something is organic, then then there should be a somebody should be testing it for pesticides. Yeah, that you know, I mean, in the United States, we would think of that a little bit. I mean, that just seems counterintuitive. We'd think about it differently. We'd figure, oh, why would there be pesticides on organic? But the the points that you make here about sometimes there's cross contamination or drift or you know residues in the soil, or sometimes things get mixed together. Yeah, yeah, a lot can happen between the farm and the in uh, the uh, export dock. Yeah, there is that. There is that, and there's a you know, and there's a and there's a uh, you know, a financial incentive to do that because organic herbs sell for much more than the than the regular. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvellous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. So back to that issue of, of heavy metals. That's something we hear about a lot. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of concern about that. Yeah. So when we talk about heavy metals, we should uh, we should... Uh, be very clear, and this is something we should be clear about. Most of the time, you want to separate your discussions between a prepared prepared medicinal substance and a raw herb, and this is especially important for for the uh, for heavy metal discussion. Uh, and 
the reason I said this because obviously what matters matters. You know, let me let me just go back for one instant. The reason that people don't want pesticides is because they cause all kinds of bad things when you when you eat them. You know, for example, they they're, they're carcinogens. They affect the the reproductive system and and uh, and and cause other kinds of uh, medical issues. But there's another reason for not using uh, pesticide laden herbs, and that is that you're trying to push uh, an industry in a certain direction because the most harm for using pesticides is is in the local environment. I mean, it's the kids who live around that area and the pregnant women in that area where these pesticides are being sprayed and they get into the water and into the air and into the soil. Uh, that's where they're going to cause the most harm. So, you know, if you, if you think about it that way, then pesticide use, even a small amount on your herb, may indicate a larger amount in the local area where it comes from. So for... For pesticides, that's you know that's something that, to consider. Obviously, for heavy metals, no one's putting heavy metals on uh, on plants. Uh, they just come. They they get the heavy metals from the air or from the soil. Uh, so it's a it's a different. Uh, it's really a different kind of contaminant. The other issue with heavy metals is that uh, the important thing about heavy metals is is in the final product. So you can have a lot of heavy metals in your herbal material as long as they don't get into the final product, then they're 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 not uh, harmful. And so, when you say and, not get into the final product, how would I mean? How are heavy metals transferred into a final product? Well, there's different kinds of products. If you're just grinding up the herbs uh, and you're making them into a tablet or a or a capsule or something like that, then you're going to get all the heavy metals that are in that herb are going to be ingested by the person. Now, how much of that is uh, is bioavailable and how much actually goes into the person, that's another issue and, and it's something that probably needs further study. But if you're cooking the herbs then uh, then and you're cooking them in water, then only the things that are water-soluble are going to go into the solution. And most heavy metals are not very water-soluble. And so you could have an herb that has a lot of heavy metals, but if, it, uh, if, you're, if you're decocting it, then the liquid uh, probably does not have that much heavy metal. But if you, were to, if you were to grind it or eat those herbs themselves, then, you yeah, would, then, you'd be, then your exposure then you'd goes up. a lot of heavy metal. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the 1990s, uh, this was a big issue for the, for the concentrated granule companies. Uh, there were several companies that used to use the ground-up herb as the carrier for their extracts. And so when they, made the, uh, when they made the extracts and they tried to export them to Europe, then they found that the heavy metals were, were too high. Uh, for the European standard, uh -huh. and so they had to switch their carriers to uh, to a different carrier, you know, to either potato starch or corn starch. And uh, to this day, most companies now use potato starch or corn starch. Uh, at least the companies in Taiwan. Yeah, you know, I mean, when I first thought about it, I thought, yeah, why not use the ground up herbs? But if if that is actually where you're, the source of the heavy metals. I was just, you know, I was just thinking, yeah, use the ground up herbs. You're going to get a little more of that herb substance, but you're also going to get anything that's in there that's a heavy metal contaminant. Sure. I mean, there are some herbs that you wouldn't want to do that with because they should be cooked. You know, they're not, they shouldn't be eaten raw just because they're, they're chemical, chemical constituents. For example, aconite would be an example of an herb you'd never want to, you'd never want to grind it up and eat it. That would be, that'd be a, a foolish thing to do. You, know, you could, you, you could use it externally, but not internally. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, uh, so for heavy metals, if if you're uh, but if you're if you're buying a product that is going to be taken directly by the patient, then you should know what the heavy metal count of it is. It should have passed a heavy metal test. There are no standards, by the way, for them in the U.S. So generally, uh, you probably want to compare them with the the European standards. So, what is the European standard? Well, it's different for each of the heavy metals. You can just type into Google what's the European, uh, what are the standards for heavy metals in uh, in Europe, and you'll they'll, it goes by category and it goes by specific product. Okay. Yeah. So you can find things. You look up mint, for example, and then you have an idea what uh, what they allow, what their heavy metal limits are for mint. All right. What about the issue of sulfur? Is that an issue? <laughs> Let me see. So, you know, as I mentioned, when, when we first started uh, the herb shop, we, we found that almost everything was sulfur back in those days. It was really bad. I mean, so you get an herb, you open up the bag and you just smell this terrible sulfur smell. Luckily, that's changed. You know, awareness has been brought. And I suspect that most of that awareness came from the West, you know, to China. And they and they, people started requesting herbs that didn't have sulfur on them. And, uh, and so, uh, and so I think we affected change, you know, us, us, uh, herb companies in the West did that, uh, spring wind would, would have been a very small factor because we're such a small company, but some of the larger companies also, uh, got into this idea of, uh, sulfur free. And I think that really pushed, uh, the whole market in China because yeah. they said, well, if it's not good enough for them, why is it good enough for us? And, uh, and I think they started to say, well, we don't need the sulfur either. Uh, and they began to realize that sulfur mostly just makes the herbs look a little better, that kind of thing, and it's not necessary. Are there health issues with having sulfur on the herbs? Well, first, let's talk about what it means about er- what, what kind of sulfur gets into herbs. It's not the same. You know, sulfur is is everywhere. It's forget it's it's one of the most common elements in the in the universe. So it's not uh, it's not something that's uh, that's not everywhere. The, what we're worried about here is sulfites, and uh, and because some people have an, a reaction to sulfites, the most common reaction is in about five percent of people who have asthma. They'll get uh, they'll get an asthma attack, or asthma attack will worsen, or their their condition in general will worsen. People with uh, certain allergies tend to sometimes be a little more uh, sensitive to uh, these sulfites as well. You might probably remember back in I think it was in the 90s that they had that big thing where uh, uh, all the salad bars they were pray- they were spraying them with sulfites, and that prevents the salads from turning brown. But a lot of people got reactions from this, and so they outlawed that. You can't you can't do that anymore in salad bars. So that that reaction is is similar to the same one that some people get with wine, mm-hmm. uh, because sulfites are found in wine. Now they can be found just a process of the fermentation of the wine, so they're naturally occurring. But also they add them in uh, as a preservative uh, to preserve the flavor. Sometimes you know prevent it from getting more acidic. So sulfites uh, in that form. Are, are definitely you know not good for some people. They'll, they'll have a reaction to it. In Chinese herbs, that's not the form of so nobody sprays sulfites onto the Chinese herbs. That's not what happens. What happens with Chinese herbs is after they're picked, generally most herbs, in order to slice them, you have to soak them first to get them soft, and then you slice them. So in this process of soaking, uh, there's a big chance that they'll get uh, if you leave them or sitting around, they'll get moldy or be subject to insect uh, infestations 
And so people would sulfur the herbs uh, to prevent that. Also, of course, sulfuring makes the herbs look nice and white. And uh, there was a, a great uh, market for white herbs in China. I think that that's, that's becoming less so now that people are realizing that a white herb is no better than an herb that's uh, slightly colored. So this is an improvement. So uh, the take the herbs that are either slightly still slightly moist or, or, or already dried, and they put them in these large uh, cabinets, and they burn sulfur on the bottom underneath them. And the sulfur, so sulfur dioxide gas wafts up uh, through the herbs. And uh, when those herbs, uh, they get caught, the sulfur dioxide gets caught in the crevices of the herbs, and it helps prevent the insect. Uh, infestations and also like I said keeps the herb a nice color it also keeps the herb soft and this is good for a lot of the uh, se several herbs that are difficult to slice so in the old days everybody used to do this with dangue they'd always sulfur the dangue because they would say oh you can't slice it if you don't sulfur it but nowadays they figured out ways to slice it so and we seldom see dangue sulfured anymore so sulfuring has gone down a lot. There's still certain herbs that we have some trouble getting getting unsulfured. The only way you can get them is you have to go, you have to have your supplier go directly to the farm and, and get that herb early on before it gets sulfured, because uh, the farmers don't don't want to take the chance of losing their crop to mold or insect uh, insect infestation. Yeah. I might be wrong on this, but it sounds by and large the way they're doing it with. Uh... You know, just burning some sulfur and, and letting that, that sulfur dioxide waft up. It sounds fairly innocuous, given that it helps with pest control and it might help with uh, freshness so that, that materials don't get lost. Yeah, you might think that. But, you know, for uh, for me, the way I thought about it, I don't know how accurate this is, but I just thought, why do something to the herb if you don't have to? You know, I don't, just to make it look better, we don't really care. You know, there's other ways to prevent bugs, and, you know, it's a natural product. Occasionally, they'll let you get a bug or two. But, yeah, I mean, the pH of the, uh, of the herb will change then a little bit. We don't know what other – I've seen some studies that sulfuring reduced certain uh, components of, the, of bai shao and bai shao was sulfur. So I'd say it's best to avoid it whenever possible. Yeah, yeah in terms of the that kind of reaction, there's never been a recorded uh, that I've ever heard of anybody having that the sulfite reaction from Chinese herbs. I'm not saying it, it never happened, but at one point I asked the guy who was the head of the California FDA about that, and he said there's never there was never a reported uh, adverse event of of somebody having a sulfite reaction from Chinese herbs. That was several years ago, and I don't know if that's changed, but we've never had a customer ever complain about that. In the old days, you know, before we were conscious of that, we certainly sold a lot of sulfur to herbs. You know, now, now, like I said, it's not as much of a problem. Well, over time, things change, and, you know, and you kind of get smarter about what you're doing, you know, what to look for. And, and it sounds like the herb companies in the States – have had some impact on the on the practices over in Asia in terms of, of how they're growing and how they're and how they're processing. Oh, definitely, definitely, lots of things and in lots of areas. So all the companies here should be applauded for that. Uh, and so, so that was a good thing. I, if we can push the industry in a certain direction, then that's always uh, that's always a positive. Yeah, and better for the people that are living on those farms and around all those. Uh, chemicals and such too. Exactly. Really exactly. helpful for them. I mean, it's important for us and our patients. Well, I'm thinking about, well, I was going to say downstream effect, but it's actually an upstream effect. All those people that are affected by uh, by living around that kind of poison. Sure. Yeah. yeah. 
I'd like to get into granules here. Uh, you and I were having a discussion the other day before we uh, got the podcast going here about granules and concentrations. And I mean, there's just, I've been using granules for a while. I, I didn't really use them much until I went to Taiwan and they were so in use there and it was so convenient. And I saw a lot of people get better at just, you know, just taking granules that when I came back to the States, that's primarily the way that, that I use herbs these days. But there's all kinds of issues that, that we were discussing the other day about this thing about like a five to one concentration there. Most of them were sold as a five to one concentration. And you were telling me that is like a dream that it's five to one. <laughs> there, there is no such thing. And yeah, number one, I, number mean, one, I, I want to get yeah, into that. But before we yeah. do, how did this five to one concentration thing show up? Was that a marketing thing? Where did that come from? You know, I only know a rumor about that. I have no idea where five to one came from. So the idea when people hear five to one, what they assume, and, and I think what the companies were also saying at, at some point, was that they were to make one kilogram of concentrated granule, that they were using five kilograms of the raw herb to start with, or the bulk herb. So that would be a five, what we call a, um, you know, a source herb to a final product ratio. Um, so the story I heard, and again, I don't know if it's true or not, but it requires a little bit of an understanding of how granules are made. So if you'll bear with me for a moment, I'll go through that. Yeah, take us behind the scenes here. Yeah, I'll do it fairly simply. I'm not going to put in all the steps, but I'll, I'll give you enough so that you'll know that the later points will be will be clear. So what they do is they take the, the herbs and they prepare them and clean them and do whatever they have to do to them before they're going to cook them. And then they put them in these huge extraction vats. Now, these vats are not like your, uh, not like the, the, uh, the cooking pot on your stove in that they're, they're a closed system. And the, the volatile oils are generally captured at the beginning of the extraction process. So they put these herbs in these large vats with a lot of water. And then they cook them at a specified temperature, and every herb should probably have a different temperature. And they have these stirring mechanisms so that the solution gets stirred to uh, increase the uh, amount of extraction. So you get an um, optimal extraction. And then they cook it for a specified amount of time. Again, it would be uh, they have something called a standard operating procedure for each product. And that would be that would list, you know, what temperature, how long they're going to cook it, you know, whether it's stirred or not, all kinds of different uh, factors, uh, how mu whether they're going to capture the volatile oils and how much volatile oils they're going to capture. All that kind of stuff would be uh, would be part of the uh, the SOP. So then after the extraction, they'll take the herbs out of the extractor and all that's left then is the decocted liquid. And that's uh, siphoned down into a concentration tank. And in the concentration tank, they use a, a very uh, low low pressure. It's not quite vacuum, obviously. We can't achieve a perfect vacuum, but it's a, it's a low pressure uh, situation so that the water will evaporate out of this uh, extract uh, without using too high a heat. So normally water boils at around 100 degrees, but because they reduce the pressure inside there, the water boils at about 60 degrees and they can uh, achieve substantial uh, extraction of the liquid at a low temperature, which is good because high temperatures destroy more of the components and they want to do it at a low temperature. So they boil it down uh, to about one-tenth 
of the original amount of water. Now that varies greatly with the product because if it's a very sticky product, then they would do, obviously, they can't boil it down as much. And if it's a very thin product, then they can boil it down more. At that point, the liquid is then pumped into a place where it's a, it's a thicker liquid at that point. And, uh, and, they, and they pump it into a place where they'll mix it with the carrier. And there's several uh, different ways to do that. And, and we won't go into all that at this point. But basically, uh, that's how they make the granule. Then they might, they might add in some methyl cellulose or something like that to make a, uh, a nice flowing granule that, will, uh, that, that you'd want to actually uh, use. And so they mix it with their carrier, which, as I mentioned before, in the old days was, uh, was the raw herb. And nowadays is mostly cornstarch or potato starch. Or if you go to mainland China, then the extracts coming out of there are all they use a uh, maltodextrin as a as a carrier. So that's the process. Now, what was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> this thing about a five to one concentration and why, if we are actually mixing well, and further question: if if we're actually mixing up our herbs based on thinking that each one's a five to one extraction, they've all got the same you know amount of herb, mm. then we're going to miss the mark. Yeah, if you're basing your doses on on the extraction ratio, that might be a that might be a um, you might be barking up the wrong tree. So first of all, let me tell you the story, which I I, I don't have any verification of, but that I heard uh, actually two different times, and and that is that. So in the old days, they would uh, take this. Remember, I told you they they did the extraction, and then they uh, would concentrate the the liquid down, and they would make it about a tenth of what its original volume was. So if they had had 100 you know, liters of liquid to begin with, they would cook it down until it was 10 liters of liquid. So they, at that point, they figured, and I believe correctly, that they had a 10 to 1 extract. But it was a liquid extract of 10 to 1. Mm -hmm. So what they did then is they figured, well, in those days, uh, that they knew by the final weight of their product that half of the product was carrier. So they said, well, we had a 10 to 1 extract, and now half of the product is carrier, so it must be a 5 to 1. Okay. I could see where that math would come from. You can see where that math would come from, but it has nothing to do with what we call a uh, source herb to final product ratio. So tell us about that. All right. So the, uh, like I said, a source herb to final product ratio means that in order to make, uh, so let's just take a specific herb. Let's take a simple herb like sangye. Uh, which is the uh, mulberry leaf. So if you took, uh, maybe they took like, say they want to make 100 kilograms of, uh, of, of final product, they would have to start off with about 1,500 uh, pounds of, uh, of sangye in order to make a decent extract. Now they could use as much as they want. They could use, if they wanted to make 100, they could have used, if they used 10,000, if they used 1,000, kilograms and they want to make 100 kilograms, that would be a 10 to 1 uh, source herb to final product ratio. Mm -hmm. So they use 10 times as much of the raw herb to make the uh, final product. Uh, so 10, oh, a, thousand, a thousand kilograms of uh, sangye raw herb to make 10 kilograms of sangye extract. And that would be called a 10 to 1. Wait, wait, you, wait, wait a, a 10 kilogram or a 100 kilogram? Uh, sort of, I meant to say, <laughs> I have no idea what I did say, but I meant to say that they were going to start off with a thousand uh -huh. and come out with a hundred. Okay. 
I'm just checking right, because so I'm kind of a simple guy from Missouri and my math sucks. So I just yeah. want to make sure I'm getting this right. Yeah, so 10 to 1, basically. 10 times as much raw herbs as they end up with it as final product. But they could have used 20 times or they could have used 30 times, and they could call it a 30 to 1 extract if they want. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, in, in this whole extract process that we just talked about, there is an optimal amount of each herb uh, that should be used at the beginning in order to come up with the best granule. In other words, a granule that doesn't stick together at the end, a granule that has... The, about the same component ratio as you would get if you cooked on your stove. That's what we're looking for. We're trying to duplicate, I would assume, what happened in a uh, decocted formula. Yes. So we're trying. We're trying to duplicate. Right. That. Except make it easy and convenient. Exactly. That's the that's the big advantage. So that's that's what a source herb to final product ratio is. The truth is, in order to make these <clears throat> these granules. What I've seen in the companies I've talked to, the range goes anywhere from about one to one all the way up to 20 or 30 to one. Wow. Yeah. So if you're doing a really sticky herb, something like uh, Shou Di Wang or Shu Di Wang. Yeah. That's, good. That, that's, a, that's a good gooey one. Yeah. So when you cook that down, after you've done the concentration, you end up with a gooey mess. So you have to add so much carrier into that so that it won't just be a gooey mess that you diluted all the advantage you gained from the uh, from the concentration. You just lost when you put all the all that carrier back in there. So it would be what more like a one to three or one to one or mm, somewhere between probably one point five to one and one to two to one or something like that. Maybe a two to one. Yeah. It depends on the, you know, on the process exactly. And I'm sure every company has slightly different procedures. Uh, as we, we mentioned, they, they all have their own cooking standards. So uh, what they are, it might determine the exact ratio there. Yeah. And what they're using as a carrier, those things are all, are all factors. So, and then another herb, like, uh, for example, sangjir, you know, the twig of the of mulberry tree, mm -hmm. you've got to use about 20, 20 uh, kilograms to make one kilogram uh, of that, or you won't end up with, you'll end up with a very weak extract. And so every herb is different. Every herb has its own extraction ratio. So then the question becomes, uh, the question that's uh, brewing in everyone's mind when they hear this is, well, gosh, all these things have different extraction ratios. How, how am I supposed to dose these things? Exactly. And I would say this, first of all, even if they were all five to one extracts in terms of source herb to final product, that still would not, you would have be no, none the wiser in terms, in terms of your, uh, in terms of your dosing, you still can't assume that it's five times more powerful than the raw herb would have been had you cooked it. Because you're comparing two very different things. You know, a freshly cooked decoction is not the same as a uh, an herb that has gone through the process that I just reviewed for you with the extraction, the concentration, all the water being removed, and then in mixed with a carrier. So once you do that, uh, the product is, is not the same product. Right. It's, it's similar... But if we think about it as like a freeze-dried decoction, that's that's a real error on our part. Yeah, that would be a little different. And I'm not, you know, and I don't know enough about the whole processes of freeze-drying. Well, no, but um, I mean, so. it's what what I mean is we're getting this this granulated product, 
we often think of it that it's like a decoction, but in some ways, and this is part of the conversation we had the other day, you were saying it's it's really kind of a different medicinal, and it's like a new kid on the block. It's this new thing that's shown up in the past 40, 50 years. Sure, and certainly it's based on, it's based enough on the tradition of Chinese medicine, the way herbs have been cooked through the ages, that we can still use the experience of our predecessors to use these herbs. But in terms of dosing, we need to we need to rediscover that because when they were doing dosing, it was uh, uh, they were they were all doing it the same way basically. You know, they were taking uh, raw herbs and putting them into decoction, and then the person would drink the decoction. But what we're doing now is something quite different, and we need to figure out exactly how to how to dose these things and it gets it's a very complex uh, subject and and something we we worry to actually go into it today would take far too much time but at least we can introduce the the fact that it's not as simple as you thought it was it's not five to one and that if you want to give somebody 10 grams that doesn't mean you give them two grams of concentrate uh, so because the five to one thing was not true. And even if it was, the difference in the processing between a decoction and a granule is such we need to reinvent the wheel in this case in terms of dosing. Because there's there's an unknown in this. Yeah, there's and a lot of there's a lot of unknowns. <laughs> so yeah. and I understand that that this is complex and we might need like a whole follow up show for that. But are there some basic guidelines that you could give us. I know that in your book, Notes from South Mountain, you, you, I believe you speak about this a bit. It's all about granules. And isn't there a section in the, um, the new formulas and strategies on this as well? Yeah, both of those exist. And those are based on, on how these herbs, how, how I observe these herbs, uh, you know, the granules being dispensed in Taiwan. Now, Taiwan has the longest use of these herbs, aside from Japan. This whole process of uh, granulization of the herbs was invented in Japan. Uh, their experience is a little different than that in Taiwan, because in Japan, they only did the formulas. They didn't do single herbs. So that uh, simplified things for them. And what they would do is, for a formula, they would give me around six grams a, uh, a day. And so they were saying six grams uh, but they weren't claiming five to one, as far as I know. They were just saying, here it is. We concentrated this thing down, and you should take about six grams of this a day. In Taiwan, and I, I'm not sure the dates of this, but at some point, they were the granules were introduced into Taiwan, I believe, in the 50s. And then at some time after that, and I, again, I've forgotten the dates, it was accepted as being reimbursable uh, through the insurance uh, program in Taiwan. Now, Taiwan has uh, single-payer health insurance. Yeah, they have an amazing health insurance health, health insurance yeah. system there. It's, oh my God. It's, it's really good. It's really good. It covers so much, and it's incredibly affordable. Yeah, and um, and they, but they don't cover the raw herbs. They only cover the granules. So granules really took off in uh, in Taiwan at that time. And became very popular. So very few doctors did not use, avoided using granules. They almost all used granules. Right, because it's reimbursable. And so, yeah, because of, because the patient would like it because they would, they would it would be free if they got raw herbs or bulk herbs, they would have to pay for them. Yeah. So I studied with a number of different doctors, and I assume you did as well in Taiwan. And I sort of 
no one ever came out and said, this is what we do. But I looked at what they did and I tried to figure out how they were making the calculations. And I came up with a system uh, where uh, usually they would use their total amount of herbs somewhere between 10 and 15 grams a day. And then they would divide that up between the herbs and the formulas. And what I also noticed is that in general, they would use one gram a day as a standard dose for most herbs. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Now you're saying sing, you're saying single herbs or formula single herbs. Single so herbs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So say for example they wanted to give somebody uh gui pi tang, you know, this person had insomnia. They wanted to add a couple of single herbs. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Say they wanted to add ye jiao tang, which is the vine of the Hosho Wu. Mm-hmm. And or and they wanted to add also maybe yuan zhe, polygala, I believe. And um and so they would first say, well, how much of the single herbs am I going to add? And they, say they were going to give it for 10 days. Uh, like I said, normally they would give uh, one gram per day. So if it was a normal herb, they would have given 10 grams of that single herb for a 10-day dose. So let's, let's pick another herb. What's another good sleep herb? Oh, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, a fan of, I'm, I'm a fan of the Ye Jiao Tang. Swanzaren. Yeah. Okay. So let's say they wanted to add extra Swanzaren, even though it's already in the grapey tongue, right? So they're going to add extra Swanzaren. So Swanzaren, they would just dose it as one gram a day. So they add 10 grams of Swanzaren. That's the beginning of their that's the beginning of their formulation process, because that's a normal herb, and so we're just going to add 10 grams for 10 days, one gram per day. Gram a day. Gram gram a day of the singles. Yes. At first, we're doing the singles, and then what they usually do is they then calculate, okay, how much I got left for my formula then I'll put that in there. And so the calculation would be, okay, so we'll give 10 grams of swan's hour in. Now, ye jiao tongue is an herb I usually use around 30 grams. So I can't just give one gram a day. I'm going to give oh, one or one and a half or two grams a day. So let's say they decide they're going to give one and a half grams a day for the ye jiao tongue. And what they're really saying when they say that is, gosh, the ye jiao tongue is the kind of herb that you cook it in the water and not much comes out. So I better use more of the concentrate here. And so they're figuring that it's slightly weaker, and, and they want to use a larger dose because they normally would use up to 30 grams of the age out 
So they would use 1.5 grams of EHL time per day. So that's another 15 grams if we multiply that times a 10-day dose. So, so far we've got 10 grams of the swan's hour end. We got 15 grams of the EHL time. Now, they wanted to use Yenjur. Now, Yenjur in general is used in small amounts. And so for that, they didn't want to use a gram a day. They only use a half a gram a day. Uh, because it's an herb that's used in small amounts. And so they would only use a half a gram a day. So for 10 days, that would be five grams. Yep. So we got 30 grams of single herbs. So that leaves them with another 70 grams for the 10, because say they wanted to give 10 grams a day. Uh, so they want to give 100 altogether. They've already used 30. So now they have 70 grams left for the uh, for the formula. And that's that was the way I saw people doing Now Sometimes they would use two formulas. And, uh, and there's some other distinctions that we should make, which we'll do in a second. So that's the general. Is that, is that, uh, is, was that clear enough that people could follow? I think so. Well, I mean, I followed it, but then again, I spent a fair amount of time with Dr. Zhang there and watched him do the same thing. But I, 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 think, our, I think our listeners can follow that. Well, they'll let us know. Uh, anyway, so that's the, that's the general process that I saw happening in Taiwan. And people would use sometimes 10 grams a day and sometimes 15 grams a day, or sometimes somewhere in between, depending on what was going on. There's a few other factors that have to be considered, and that is one of them is the uh, is that not all herbs are concentrates. Some herbs are only made as a, a, a ground up powder. So, for example, yeah, for example, shergao, mm-hmm. uh, longu, muli. Yeah, digesher uh, is probably that in that category too, isn't it? Yes, almost all the minerals, uh, most of the saps. And also the the animal products often are not uh, are, are not uh, concentrates. So there's two reasons that things won't be concentrates. One is that they're not very water soluble, so that it does no good to make a concentrate if something is not water soluble, because in effect what you would be doing is cooking it in water, taking out the water, and you'd be left exactly with what you started with. Mm-hmm. So there would be very little point in making a concentrate of them. The second reason has to do with price. There are some herbs that are so expensive that you can't afford to concentrate them. And I would think that things like Chuan Beimu, which is fritillaria, fall into that, uh, fall into that carry. Tian Chi is another herb that's generally not concentrated because it's so expensive. What about the issue of heavy metals with those then? Because we're looking at- That's a good question. Yeah, yeah they should be. But all the, all the concentrates are all tested for heavy metals. So that shouldn't be an issue. Uh, it should be something that uh, that you can get the C of A from your supplier, and they should have uh, they can show you the heavy metal count. Okay. I should point out that when dosing these herbs, obviously, if it's something like TNC, then just dose it the way you would. If you look in uh, in the Materia Medica, they'll tell you how to dose the powder of TNC. So you'll have no problem with that. You just do what they say. You know, it's usually like one gram a day or, or up to two or three grams a day in some cases. But that's so you would just figure that out. That would be easy. But if it's something like shergao, which is not usually taken as a powder, then you have to make a you have to make a calculation yourself. So normally we take about 30 grams of shergao, and if you cook that in a decoction, you have to kind of guess well how much of that actually goes into the solution. It's probably not very much, maybe one thirtieth of it. So maybe if you're going to give 30 grams a day, then maybe you just give one gram a day of, uh, of shergao powder. So it's kind of the opposite of what you would think, because you would think, well, this isn't concentrated. I have to use more of it. But the truth is that's not concentrated, and you better not use too much because it's pretty hard to, to digest a stone. 
right. uh, or a shell. And when you think about the stones and shells, I mean, how much is actually being cooked out? Well, that's what I was saying. Yeah, you're probably about one thirtieth or one fiftieth of what you actually put in there actually shows up in the in the you know dissolves into the solution. Mm-hmm. Could be less. Okay. Are there any resources that you would point our listeners toward if they wanted to find out more about how to think about dosing these granulated yeah, so herbs? Like you said at the beginning of notes from South Mountain, there's a uh, there's a discussion, and then also in formulas and strategies in the introduction, there's another another discussion of that. Now this is an evolving discussion because, as I mentioned, I think this is something that we're still discovering. You know, you may in your practice you may discover that a certain herbs need larger doses in granules, and certain herbs maybe don't even work as granules. I've ha- I have doubts about certain herbs in, in granules, and this is again just a personal thing. Uh, that I haven't tested out thoroughly. It would be nice if, if a lot of people did take these things into consideration. For example, Yuxing Tao is an herb that's not supposed to be cooked for very long because it, its components will break down. So there's, it's very difficult to make a concentrated extract without cooking for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Those herbs are cooked a lot longer than we cook them on the stove. Yeah. I mean, Yuxing Tao, you could just about put it in hot water and drink it as a tea, and that's pretty good. That's true. Yeah. yeah, that's the way I used to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I don't tend to use Yuxing Tao as a granule for that reason. And then the same thing is with Gotong. You know, Gotong for its uh, blood pressure uh, usefulness, for its ability to lower blood pressure, uh, it's not supposed to be cooked more than uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And so, again, I think that maybe a granule is not the best uh, use uh-huh. of that or so sometimes I'll have people, if I'm giving granules, I'll have them take those herbs and just cook them up as a decoction and wash down their granules with uh, with that. I think it's a good solution to, to a problem like that mm-hmm. you know, for herbs that shouldn't be cooked very well. Was I answering your question at the beginning of the life? Oh, you know, I mean, this is the kind of thing when you answer one question, you open up a can of worms and, not, you know, there's a ton of other questions. But I, I think given that we're already an hour into the show here, that's probably enough for the moment. And we've got some resources that people can go look at. Oh, good. We got through about half of the questions we thought we would. Yeah. Well, that, you know, then we get to do a part two later. That's always fun. Uh, before Great. I let you go, though, yeah. um, I mean, you've been at this acupuncture and Chinese medicine herb thing for a long time. Uh, this is just a slight little switch of topic and then we'll wind it down. But I'm just curious to know if there's any trends that you see in the development of Chinese medicine or East Asian medicine, however we're supposed to say it these days. Um, any <laughs> trends that you see here in the West that you think we should be paying attention to? Uh, do you mean paying attention to in terms of we better watch out for these or that these are a good thing? <laughs> you know, either or both. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, and now I've really opened up a can of worms here, but... Uh, yeah, so I'll, but I'll do it fairly, fairly quickly. Okay. I think that um, there's some... What we see is a tendency now for uh, alternative medicines to, uh, to, to kind of sneak into Western medical models. Um, and I think that this has both an advantage and a disadvantage. And so, uh, for example, the, the Cleveland Clinic does quite a bit with Chinese medicine, as far as I know. I'm not intimately connected with it or not, but I think that, that that's a model that, that probably will expand. Yes, a lot of people um, are talking about that one. Yeah. So it's great because it brings a lot of attention to Chinese medicine. It provides us with a place where we can get data about Chinese, about the effectiveness of Chinese medicine. 
So these are all really good things. One area I would I would caution us as we go forward is that uh, we don't want to drift too far away from Chinese medicine. You know, in uh, somewhere in in a walk along the river, uh, Doctor Doctor Yu talks about this a little bit, and he talks about that a lot of people. In China, when they talk about this Zhongxi Jiehe, which means the the kind of the melding of Chinese and and Western medicine together, that uh, what they really end up doing is doing Western medicine but using Chinese herbs. And I think that if we do that, we're going to be losing a lot of a lot of the advantage of Chinese medicine. I mean, the strength of Chinese medicine, in my mind, is that it has such a long tradition, and this has to do with the fact that the Chinese culture and、uh, written language has existed for over two thousand years, and we can go back and and see the、uh, the experience of of thousands and thousands of practitioners over all this period of time. Yeah, talk talk about evidence based medicine. Exactly. Yeah. So if we if we throw away all that experience and just start using the herbs because it's a diuretic or because it、uh, it lowers blood pressure or it does this or does that, then I think that we're going to we're certainly not going to see the kind of results that、uh, that practitioners of Chinese medicine have seen in the past and that we could see in the future. So that's that that's a that's where we have to be careful as we combine ourselves into the into this into the model of medicine that we have in the West. Mm-hmm. And what about on the other side of it? Some positives that you see. Well, I think the attention that we're getting is certainly a positive thing. Okay. Well, Andy, I'm going to let you go. I so appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us, and we'll get you back on again, and we can go even further, especially into this granule thing. Are, are there any other resources?、Um, I mean, I already asked you about some. Is there anything else that you might have on your website? About this stuff, I don't think anything. I don't think anything yet. No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. At some point, I'm going to be doing a thorough article on dosing and trying to bring it more up to date with more research that I've been doing recently. But I'm not there yet. So I would say, hopefully, within six months, I'll have an article. And I, I try not to limit it to our website. I try to make it available to people on a larger, larger scale. That'd be great. Maybe as you get closer to、uh, publishing that, we can post we, it on your on your. Do you have a site where we can? I have Geological. We can put it on Geological. There you yeah, go. And and, and maybe get you back、it. on here to talk about it too. There we go. That'd be fun. All right, Andy. All thank right. you so much for joining me today. Oh, great to talk to you. It's a, a privilege. Thank you. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new, or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member, or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.